Welcome to Relevant Faith Church this morning. My name is Mike Wilmer. I am the lead pastor here at Relevant Faith, and we are excited that you have joined us this morning. It is a, a beautiful Sunday morning in April. I want to first commend you for braving the weather, the spring snow. I don't know what that's about. Yesterday's sunny in 58, and we had kids hunting eggs, and today we got two inches of snow. Welcome to the Midwest just the way that it is. And it's okay, though, because this is the day the Lord has made, and we will rejoice and be glad in it, even if you're not glad about the weather. started a series last week called Four Cups, and the idea of this series is centered around the Passover. I briefly mentioned in worship in our time of communion, but um, it's, it's centered around this idea that God has a plan and God has promises for your life. And we define a promise from God as being an offer with a guaranteed result. How many of you ever been promised something before by someone where that promise was not necessarily fulfilled, that the result was definitely not guaranteed? Has anybody ever experienced that before? Right? But with God, everything that He promises, the Bible says, is yet are yes and amen. So it's yes, as in yes, it belongs to you. Yes, it is yours. Yes, you may seek it. Yes, you may embrace it, walk in it, hunger for it, and amen. So be it. Let it be done as it has already been spoken. That's the promises of God. Second Peter chapter 1, verse 4 says it like this. And because of his glory and excellence, he has given us great and precious promises These are the promises that enable you to share his divine nature and escape the world's corruption caused by human desire. So his promises are designed so that you have this ability to tap into and walk in the divine nature of God. We look at God and think that he's this lofty character who's up in the sky with his right hand of judgment and he's pounding the top of my head for every mistake and everything that I've ever done. But the reality is the God that we serve who sent his son to suffer and die for our sin is the same God who says, I want you to share in the divine nature of who I am. And there's nothing more powerful than the understanding that we get to share in the divine nature of God. And all throughout scripture, you'll find these promises that I'm about to read you, but they come from Exodus chapter six, verses six and seven. It'll be up on the screen The Bible says, therefore, say to the Israelites, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out. Promise number one, from under the yoke of the Egyptians. Promise number two, I will free you from being slaves to them. Promise number three, and I will redeem you with my outstretched arm and and with the mighty acts of judgment. And promise number four, I will take you as my own people, and I will be your God Then you will know that I am the Lord your God who brought you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. And so he highlights four promises within this passage of Scripture, which is what translates into the Passover that the Israelite people would embrace and that Jews today still take communion and Passover in this manner, as well as many Messianic Jews and Christians follow this Process And so I'm going to break that process down for you a little bit more in more depth beginning this week. Last week, we highlighted them very, very uh, on a very surface level. We talked about salvation and freedom and restoration and fulfillment. That's kind of taking those four promises and giving a one word 
a one-word fulfillment to those four promises, being salvation, being freedom, being restoration, and fulfillment. And so these four cups give us this progression of everything God wants to do. It helps us to see, to set spiritual goals for ourselves. It also allows a new believer to see that there is a process to walking with Christ. That's what these promises all are all about. I mean, when someone first comes into their relationship and walk with God, the very first thing that takes place is, is they, they've, they've been saved. Their spirit has been saved in that moment. And you've heard me preach this before, if you've been here for any length of time, is that, that salvation is not just this momentary thing. It's this act that takes place continuously. That's why the Bible says, I have been saved, I will be saved, and I, I am being saved, and I will be saved. So there's this process to salvation that is continual forever. And then as you have walked in that salvation, you begin to become set free from things that have bound you, things that have held you back, things that have kept you from accomplishing all that God has for you. And then there's this, 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 this air of restoration that takes place in a believer's life. And again, these are not necessarily things that take place in weeks or months or even over the course of a couple years. They could be over decades or a lifetime. And we just shared, even with Miracle and her family, the restoration that God brought to their family and to their faith as it related to the body of Christ and church. Those, those, those are things that are continual in our lives. And then as you are experiencing this restoration, then becomes the fulfillment of all God's promises. You know, we oftentimes want to jump from salvation to fulfillment. We want to give our hearts and lives to Christ and then have everything. We want to disregard the process because the process is where there's pain. The process is where they're suffering. We want salvation, and then every gift that comes with salvation, I want it now. After all, that's the society that we live in, the ability to give it to you now. And so the passage of Scripture that we read is read during the annual Passover, and four cups of wine are passed representing these four promises. And so I'm gonna, I'm hopefully I'm going to teach you a little bit this morning that, that I think is going to be powerful for your faith and for your walk, and, and hopefully it brings a little bit more understanding. But I'm going I'm to do a little teaching, if that's okay, this morning. Normally, I pretty much just f preach and let it rip, but I'm going to do some teaching this morning because I want you to, um, to get this in your heart and in your spirit. And so the question that I want to talk about and actually answer this morning is, why did God reveal these promises in the four cups of Passover? And what is... Passover. And so let's answer this first. The first answer to this question is of what is Passover? If you've seen the movie Ten Commandments, it's an old, old, Christian, uh, old Christian movie that um, was produced many years ago. It's about Moses and how he was raised in the home of Pharaoh as an Egyptian and realizes that he's a Hebrew. Moses, you know, the one that God would call to set the entire nation of Israel free, commits murder gets kicked out. He spends virtually a lifetime in the desert running, hiding, has this burning bush experience where this bush that sets fire speaks to him. That would almost cause you to be put in a straitjacket in a home somewhere. Imagine that. Imagine you're walking through the desert and you're hiding for your life and then a, bur a bush bursts and catches fire and then it starts talking to you. Whew. There's a reason why some folks think Christians are crazy. It's a good thing. And he has this burning bush experience. He goes back to Egypt to rescue the Hebrew slaves. And so then all these plagues would then come on to Egypt and the Egyptian people, all because of the pride of one man, and that would be Pharaoh who refused 
to set people free. Here's the thing. There's the challenge I have, and it's a little sidebar, and I'm going to hopefully not stay on this sidebar long because I don't have a long time this morning. But in society today, you, we struggle with folks that will look at Christianity, look at God, and see his, this Old Testament God who was killing folks. And say, what kind of God is that that would kill the firstborn child of all of Egypt? I thought he loved everyone. But if you follow the story, you understand that it wasn't a God who killed the firstborn of Egypt. It was the Pharaoh who hardened his heart, who had so much arrogance and so much pride, who enslaved the children of Israel and refused to let them go. And God's like, you're not going to let my people go? Then okay, then you're going to have to deal with the consequences of enslaving my people. And this is what would then take place. And so he sent these plagues, and they didn't work until the very last plague when the firstborn will die. And here's where Passover was developed. The only way the firstborn would not die was if they took the blood of a spotless lamb, which we'll talk about in a moment, and cover the doorposts of the house with it. The Lord said, if I see the blood, I will pass over you. That's where the Israelites celebrate And that's where the word Passover comes from. And when the Israelites were set free, God gave them these Ten Commandments. Part of the instructions that God had given them was to have feasts throughout the year. And one of those feasts was the Passover feast. The Passover feast was one of the feasts to be celebrated every year. Exodus chapter 12, verses 26 and 27 says that when your children ask you, what does this ceremony mean to you? Then tell them it is the Passover sacrifice to the Lord who passed over the houses of Israel, of the Israelites in Egypt and spared our homes when he struck down the Egyptians. And he's saying, what does this mean to you? He says, remember how I saved you. Remember how your life was spared. The whole idea of communion today is in remembrance of the Lord and what Jesus did for us. Remember how I saved you. Remember how your life was spared. And then you fast forward almost 1,400 years, you find Jesus walking the earth. And the night, that he, the night before he would be crucified was also the beginning of the Passover feast. Now, I'm going to need you to track with me here because this is, this is really going to connect the idea of Passover with Christ and Easter and what he's done and what we're celebrating. Fast forward that 1,400 years, Jesus is walking the earth. And the night before he would be crucified was also the beginning of the Passover feast. He instructed his disciples to prepare the meal. And he would go to the cross on Friday. Passover was Thursday evening into Friday. And so he would even tell the disciples, prepare the meal. And this is what he said in Luke chapter 22, verses 15 through 20. He said, and he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, this, take this and divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took the bread and gave thanks and broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. The same way after supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. Here's, what, here's a couple of things I want you to see in the whole progression, the idea of what Passover actually means for us today, is that Jesus died on the Passover. And at Passover, here's how the process would work. They would sacrifice the lamb 
at 9 a.m. This is, this is the instructions of the Lord and, and the detail that God gives. When God gives into this instruction, he gets very detailed into how he wants it done. And this is how he would have wanted it done. The, the Passover, the lamb was to be sacrificed at 9 a.m. And do you know what was going on with Jesus at 9 a.m. on the Passover? He had nails in his hand. And at 3 p.m., they would take that then sacrificed lamb and they would put it into the oven. Do you know what happened at 3 p.m. on that same very day to Jesus Christ? They took him off the cross and put him into the tomb. See, these things are not, these things are not mutually exclusive. They are totally and completely intertwined together. We look at the Old Testament and suggest that's the Old Testament. I live under the New Covenant. But if we throw out the Old Testament, you're really literally throwing Jesus out the window. Because he is the fulfillment of everything that took place in the Old Testament. He even said that, I have not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. And so that's even the correlation down to the time when things would take place. This was intentional because Jesus is our Passover lamb. Jesus is the one whose blood was shed and is draped upon our lives and our hearts that causes God's judgment to pass over us. Let that sit in your heart for a moment. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7, Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed for us. That's why we celebrate communion. That's why we celebrate the Lord's Supper. So why did God, now to that second question that I asked, why did God reveal his four promises in the Passover? Here's why I believe he did this even with the children of Israel all those many years ago. It's because I believe it was designed and intended to point people to Jesus. It was designed for the Israelites to remember what God had done for them when they were enslaved to the Egyptians, but it had a future reference of pointing people to Jesus. God's plan for people could never be filled in the Old Testament because it was constantly requiring sacrifice, constantly requiring all these things that had to be done, and his plan for people couldn't be fulfilled that way. Jesus became the Passover lamb to be sacrificed once and only once for all of our sin. In order to make it possible for the four cups to be fulfilled, he had to do this. And he did it by breaking the power of Satan off of our lives. Christ is the Passover lamb. God's promises can only be filled through his son, Jesus. There's that phrase again, through his son. It's got to go through Jesus. So let's look at this idea of this, of this lamb. The lamb is the act, the word, the phrase, the word lamb is the most used description in Jesus, of Jesus in all of scripture. It is mentioned, over, mentioned 104 times where Jesus is mentioned as the lamb. Why, why does that even matter? Here's one of the examples. John chapter 1, verse 29. The next day, John saw Jesus coming towards him and said, Look, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It was a recognition of someone before he ever even spoke it in public himself. They recognized that he was the lamb of God. So a real lamb used in Passover had certain characteristics, and they're important to understand what Jesus did for us. In Exodus chapter 12, the instructions, there's three things, and these are in your notes for you this morning. Number one, the lamb was perfect. Exodus 12 gives us the instructions. The lamb was perfect. Verse number five in Exodus 12, the animals you choose must be year-old males without defect, and you may take them from sheep or goats. 
they had to bring the lamb to the temple for inspection. Anybody, anybody in the nation of Israel that wanted to sacrifice a lamb or offer a lamb up for Passover had to bring it to the temple for inspection. Four days prior to Passover, the priests would then inspect it. It's kind of like today's celebration in Christianity around the world is called Palm Sunday. It's the day that Jesus would enter into Jerusalem to the fanfare and the accolades of look who's here, the King of kings and the Lord of lords and the one who rides on a donkey. And he comes in in this kingly fashion. He was marched into Jerusalem to be inspected four days prior to his crucifixion. And so it'd be four days before the Passover, just the same. The inspection of the lamb was taking place. So why is this important for the lamb to be perfect? Because something can't, this is, this is, this is probably one of the most powerful moments for me in this entire series, is because something can't be used if it needs itself. What does that mean? It means you can't atone for someone's sin if you need atonement yourself. That's why it had to be perfect. That's why the lamb had to be perfect. That's why Jesus had to be perfect because he couldn't make atonement for my sin if he himself needed atonement for his. Jesus is the perfect lamb. He's the only person in history without sin. The only one qualified to be a savior and pay for sin. That's why he says, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. He did not say, I am a way a truth, and a life. He is, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So number one, matter of fact, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 18 and 19 says it like this. You are redeemed with the precious blood of Jesus Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. So the lamb was perfect. Number two, the lamb was sacrificed. The lamb was fat sacrifice. You think of this perfect thing. Why on earth would you sacrifice this perfect thing of the lamb? But it had to be sacrificed. Exodus chapter 12, verse 6, back to the instructions from God to the nation of Israel. Take care of them until the 14th day of the month when all the people of the community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight. Take care of them. When all, and then all the community must, of Israel must slaughter them at twilight. Isaiah is describing the cross of Jesus Christ in Isaiah 53, verse 5. He says, this is what he says about Jesus. He says, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that, was brought, uh, brought, that has brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. That was Isaiah's description of the cross long before Jesus would ever hang on that cross. The four distinct things that he said, he said that he was pierced, crushed, punished, and by his wounds, we are healed. Each one of those represents something very important to you and I. Think of it like this. What will come that we will celebrate this Friday would be Good Friday, which is the day that Jesus was arrested and crucified. And this is what he would endure. He'd endure this whipping you know, after the trial, they would take him to be scourged with this cat of nine tails. And these were nine leather straps of rope with bone and lead attached to the ends. He would receive 30 
nine stripes. Most men died from the loss of blood. By his stripes, we are healed. He would receive this crown of thorns that typically the, the thorns would be two inches long. And when placed on his head and pressed, they would pierce his skull. He would be blindfolded and beaten, mocked. Who hit you, Jesus? Why? Because he took the punishment that brought us peace. That punishment gave power to restore our minds. Worry, confusion, depression, fear, needing direction. All those things where he was pierced for those things. Punished for our peace. Does, does this, is this, is this making any sense to you? You're seeing how the punishment of Jesus Christ was so that we could have peace in our hearts and lives. We worry and we stress and we have anxiety and depression over all these things that are going on us and around us and oppressing us, yet he was, he was punished so that we would have peace. And then he's brought to Golgotha and nailed to the cross, crucified, Crucifixion would pull the arms literally out of socket and you would, be, you would experience death by suffocation. They'd break the legs of the, of the person on the cross to speed that process along. But with Jesus, it had to be different. Why? Because he was pierced for our transgression. More than just forgiveness, but for freedom. Those nails gave power to cleanse our conscience. Those nails gave power to relieve us from the guilt and shame of sin. And then finally, at the sixth hour, at 3 p.m. in the afternoon, he breathed his last breath. Like I said, they would normally have broken his legs, but they took a spear and punctured his heart. Water mingled with blood in the chest cavity and his heart ruptured. He died Literally, of a broken heart. He was crushed for our iniquities. This is what Jesus did. This is the reason why the Passover is important. This is the reason why communion is so critical to the believer, not just in the moment when you take the elements on a Sunday morning, but communion on a Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, 365-day-a-year basis to commune with Christ. His heart was crushed. See, but that's not, of course, where it ended. He had the lamb was perfect. The lamb was slaughtered. The lamb was shared. And this is where your role is so critically important. And I, I can't share enough how important Exodus chapter 12, verse number 4, again, to the instructions of the nation of Israel as it related to the Passover. Listen, this, this needs to get in the spirit of somebody in this room because I'm going to promise you, a lot of the stuff you struggle with right now, a lot of the issues that you're having in your heart and your life right now are directly connected to this passage of Scripture. He says, if any household is too small for a whole lamb, they must share one with the nearest neighbor. During Passover, others were invited. The lamb was shared. If you already experienced the benefit of Jesus as the Passover lamb, then this one thing he asks of you, to share the lamb. 
oh, but I'm uncomfortable talking about my faith. I don't care. Christ doesn't care. God, when he put his son on the cross, he didn't care about your comfort. He said, you must share the lamb. I don't want to sound insensitive and I don't want to sound harsh, but I'm telling you, we live in a day where this, this oh, I can't share my faith or, oh, I, I don't want to be thought of differently. It's got to go out the window because there is a sense of urgency that is necessary in the kingdom right now that we have to share our faith. We have to talk about the Passover lamb. We have to talk about what he's done in our hearts and our lives. There is a world suffering and dying, going straight to hell without Christ, and it's all why? Because we want to be comfortable I don't know about you, but I don't want my comfort to cause me to not share the lamb. His job was to pay for our sins. Our job is to get the message out. I mean, that was, that was the, the call to the, to the disciples. Go into all the world preaching the gospel. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse number 19, the Bible says, God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sin against them, and he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. Look at that. He is committed. God had already done the work, and he's then committed you. He's empowered you. He's implored you. He's desired from you to, to send a message of reconciliation out. God's desire is to reconcile mankind to himself first. And if he's not reconciled, if you're not reconciled to God, you can't be reconciled to one another. Why do you think our world is so jacked up? Because we're not reconciled with God. That's why there's racism. That's why there's hate. That's why there's classism and sexism and every other type of slavery and hate that there is in this world is because we're not reconciled to the Father. So how can we possibly be reconciled to one another first? We get it all out of order where everybody's bouncing around this idea of loving everyone, and that's such a great thing, but without first loving the Father, you can't possibly love anyone, including yourself. That was the design. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to help make this practical. That was some teaching, and some of, them, if some of it had some depth. I would encourage you to study some more on that on your own, and if you have questions, please, by all means, ask them. But I'm going to take a few moments, my last few moments, to make this practical for you this morning. So how do I make this practical in a part of my life? How do I make the Passover? How do I make the, this idea of the lamb a part of my life? The very first thing, pray. Pray. There's a typo in your notes. I found it last night. Forgot to change it in the notes, but it's 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4. I know the notes say 1 Corinthians. But it's 2 Corinthians 4, 4. The Bible says, the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So because they are blinded and they cannot see the gospel and they cannot see the glory of God, then we must pray not just for ourselves, but for others. Calling, here's what I believe, from this week till Easter and I don't even mean this as just, oh, it's Easter Sunday, let's pack the house. I, I, I genuinely love Easter for a couple of reasons. One, I get the opportunity to celebrate the resurrected son of Jesus, the resurrected son, Jesus Christ. And to celebrate that he was victorious over the grave is what brings power to me. And that the same Holy Spirit that raised Christ in the grave is the same Spirit of God that lives within me. I don't know about you, but that causes me to jump a little bit. That causes me to get a little bit excited. 
So for that reason, I love to celebrate this season. But here's another reason. It's one of the few times a year that everyone is open to the gospel. People who would do nothing to worship God in all of their life will show up at church on a Sunday morning at Easter because their mother or their sister or their aunt or their cousin or their neighbor or their co-worker said, hey, why don't you come and celebrate Easter with us? It's going to be awesome. They'll say, oh, it's Easter. I should go to church. They're what they call the priesters. Christmas and Easter, they're in church. And, and that's, see, we laugh, and it's like, and it's true, it's funny, but here's the reality. That means you have that opportunity to reach them. That means that God has an opportunity to reach them. It's your job to fill the place. It's your job to compel them. That's the whole parable of the great banquet, going into the highways and the byways and compelling them to come to my table. Christ has a table that, oh, man, so much better than anything you're going to eat this afternoon. So this week, here's what I want you to do. This is a very practical thing. I want you to pray. I want you to pray all week because there's people sitting in darkness and deception that are all around you. They're even in your house. They're in your house. I love my children. I love my family. My kids have no choice but to be in the house of God. None whatsoever. I don't care. Prom's coming up. My daughter's going to go to prom. Where do you think she's going to be on Sunday morning? In church. Why? Because it's a, it's a standard that we have placed. Because I understand the importance and the power of the presence of God consuming someone's heart and life. And I want to give God every opportunity he has to grip the hearts of my children. Yeah, I know they don't like it sometimes. My son can't stand coming to church sometimes. I'm being honest. He's tired. He wants to see. He'd rather sleep. I get it. This morning, my wife came into, into the bedroom, told me there was snow on the ground. I was like, you're lying. I'm going back to bed. It's April 14th. Come to church. That's how important I see it to be. And I just want to encourage you to take that, that step of boldness, whether it's in your house or it's in your job with your coworkers. Someone, they need to be prayed for. They need to be prayed for to come to church to experience God. I mean, that's my story. Anybody else, that their, that's their story. They lived in darkness, deceived that everything was cool until one day they met Jesus and then the light of God just shone and it was like, oh man, I am a wreck. <laughs> Woo, Jesus, please help me. That's still my day. Still my, every day I'm like, Jesus, please help me. That's the whole thing. And we, we, we live in this darkness and deception and think that we're okay. Take time this week and pray. Pray for your family. Pray for your coworkers. Pray for your neighbors. Pray for your friends. Pray for, your, for whoever God puts on your heart. Some of y'all, you may need to fast with that praying. I don't know if your family's anything like my family, not in my house, because in my house I'm doing pretty good, but my extended family outside of my house, I got to do some fasting for those folks. All right, some of y'all may need to fast during this time. Whatever God leads you to do is what he leads you to do. But pray for those that are lost and those that are hurting. Give them the invitation to come. You get them the invitation to come, I will get them the invitation to come to the altar. Because the presence of God will be in the room and he will be drawing. The Bible says, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men unto myself. And so if we're lifting up the name of Jesus, which is what this church is about, then he will draw people to himself. It's not me. It won't be anything that I do. But you get them the invitation to come. 
God will get them the invitation to the, to the altar. So number one, pray. Number two, invite. Invite, invite, invite. Romans chapter 10, verse 13 through 14. The Bible says, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. You don't have to worry about that. Anybody who calls on his name will be saved. But how can they call on him to save them unless they believe in him? And how can they believe in him if they have never heard about him? And how can they hear about him unless someone what? Tells them. You know, I love the idea. There's, there's, you've heard this said, and I've said it, and I believe it, and I trust it. But you heard the idea of, of preach at all times preach the gospel, and when necessary, use words. That's because let's live it out by the way you live your life, right? So true. Words are so important. Because what he's talking about in this context, if you break it down in the original language in the Greek, it actually literally meant the spoken word of God. Something that's spoken into the atmosphere. And because it's the word of God, it can never return void. It will always accomplish what it was set forth to accomplish. But it has to be spoken. And people have to hear it. Even in the flawed condition of the church, this is a church that is flawed. Number one, it's a movie theater and it's flawed. It's got sticky floors. It's got some broken chairs. I think it's pretty emblematic of who we are. We got some sticky situations in our lives. We got some broken parts. That's, why, that's part of why I love it here. It's character. But even in the church around the world in its flawed condition, in this church, no different. We're talk, I'm talking to you about inviting your family and your friends and your coworkers and your neighbors to walk with Jesus. You know, we're emphasizing this on a Sunday for church for Easter Sunday next week, but this is not just a Sunday thing. You can leave someone to Christ on your job. You can lead them to Christ in a coffee shop. I led people to Christ on a pile of plywood at 84 Lumber Company long before I ever preached the gospel. But for our context this morning, it's about getting them into the body, getting them into church where we know they're going to experience Jesus. I truly believe that if we can connect them to Jesus this weekend and we can get them to continue to come back, the next four weeks of this series will change their life. So we are going to pray. We are going to invite. And then here's number three. And this is something that I am going to preach until I die. We have to participate. Revelation 5.12 says, In a loud voice they sang, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. The most important part of that passage, in a loud voice they sang. In a loud voice they sang, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Worship is not a spectator sport. It is a participation one. Everyone participates in worship. Celebrate like you've never done before. You celebrate Jesus. And people, and, and listen, there's all kinds of worship. But folks will say, oh, well, you know what? I like to just be somber and quiet and meditate and worship. You know, and I get it. There's a time for that. I really do believe that there's a time for that. As long as you're mixing in some crazy praise. Because it says in a loud voice. And if you read Revelation, which you've heard me say before, Everyone in heaven would be doing what? 
worshiping. And in the context of what Revelation says, every nation, every tribe, every tongue gathered and worshiping Father, the Lord saying, holy, holy, holy is God. Guess what all those holies say? You're speaking something out. You're worshiping out, not just, I want to just stand here. Participate in worship. It's not to be watched and admired. It's to be experienced. That's what worshiping Jesus is about experience. It's not just a Sunday morning. This is life. This is a lifestyle. I have had worship services here on a Sunday morning. I've done a Sunday night night of worship. I've done a Friday night night of worship, and those are all corporate. I have done a Monday morning in my van worship service, putting music in and just worshiping. There's actually been a time that if you pulled up next to my van, it's bouncing because I'm jumping in my seat. Worship is to be, is not to be watched and admired, it's to be experienced. This is why we call this the worship experience. Worship is a lifestyle, not a once a week sanctuary. It's a lifestyle. I'm going to wrap up and close this message with this thought right here, if my worship team could come. I hope this is good and getting in your heart and your spirit this morning. The importance and the understanding of Passover. Amen. C.S. Lewis said this. This is how important and powerful worship is for our hearts and our lives this morning. C.S. Lewis said, it is, it's, it is in the process of being worshipped that God communicates his presence to men. It is in the process of being worshipped that God communicates his presence to men. Let me tell you what worship is not. Worship is not meant just for Sunday morning. Worship is not by the design of my preference. You know, well, you know what, I, I don't really love the music. Worship isn't about the music. The music is just a simple aid to help you to worship him. True worship comes in spirit and in truth. The Bible says even the day, the day shall come, and indeed it is here, where true worshipers will worship in spirit and in truth. That's what real worship is. It's not about the music. It's not about the preference, whether it's, it's this sound or it's a gospel sound or it's the old hymn sound with the piano and the organ. It doesn't make a difference what it is. It's all about my heart engaging with the heart of God to experience his presence. That's worship. That's what the Passover is actually about. All four cups are about worship. It's about experiencing his grace, experiencing his mercy, experiencing his love. It's about worship. You know, one of my mentors once told me, he said, Mike, you set yourself on fire. People will come and watch you burn. Think about it from a practical standpoint. Fire trucks go down your street. What do you do? You get out on the porch. Or like we used to stay back home in New York, got to go check out the stoop. 
What's going on out there? And then if there's a fire that you see, you come a little bit further off the porch into the street. To what? To watch. Why are we enamored so much by fire? Honestly, if I can be honest, I think it's part of the draw of God. I mean, at the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit came, he came like tongues of fire. And it drew everyone's attention. Something fire has this ability to do. It was a burning bush that appeared to Moses and it's fire. And it's like, whoa, man. There's this idea of fire that draws us to God. That's why he said that to me. Set yourself on fire. People will come and watch you burn. Can you imagine when you can stand and glorify God and worship God through the hell that you're walking through every single day, what that's going to do for your neighbor, what that's going to do for your family, what that's going to do for your friends. When you can stand and praise and glorify God, I'm not I'm saying when you're going through something, not putting your junk out there in the world to see on social media, but you can actually just say praise God for what he's given me and what he's done in my heart and what he's done in my life. Yeah, I know it's not perfect, and yes, I have issues, and I promise you your issues have issues just the same as my issues have issues. But man, if we could just figure out how to praise God and glorify God through every one of these issues and every one of these struggles, Woo! let me tell you what's going to happen. Not only are you going to experience all that these promises have spoken, but people around you are going to start to catch it. People around you. See, I believe that this is something that's caught. It's not always taught. I can teach you what the Bible says about worship, but unless you catch that yourself, it doesn't change you.